This is a podcast by The Straits Times. This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. We have this month been gifted by not one but two excellent books both on the implications in Southeast Asia of the rise of China. And I'm especially pleased to have both authors on board for what promises to be a great discussion. Murray Hebert, a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the CSIS here in DC, and head of research at Bauer Group Asia, is an old Southeast Asia hand. His book is called Under Beijing's Shadow. And he begins it with a first-hand recollection of the scene at Langson in February 1979, which was when tens of thousands of Chinese troops, well after the end of the Vietnam War, attacked Vietnam to punish it for invading Cambodia and throwing out the genocidal regime of the Khmer Rouge leader, Pol Pot. Sebastian Strangio, journalist and author who incidentally has written an excellent book on Cambodia's leader Hun Sen, also has a new book out called In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. And his book starts with hundreds of Chinese tourists disembarking from a cruise ship at Subic Bay in the Philippines in January 2019. A world of difference between those two scenes and yet fascinatingly connected. A reminder of cause and effect in a very complex region. Remember, it was partly out of its base at Subic Bay that the United States fought in Vietnam. So gentlemen, congratulations on your books. And we have a head-to-head -head of sorts here. How wonderful. So both books very well-timed and required reading given that Southeast Asia is in this balancing act right now in the middle of an increasingly hostile US-China relationship. Murray, if I may start with you, clearly Beijing's shadow has lengthened considerably and in fact China has become critical to the economies of the region. What is the key takeaway from your research and from your book? Um, well, I, I think, you know, especially since, obviously these countries have a very long history with China, but since uh, China opened its economy in 19, uh, the late 1970s, uh, they have, uh, the countries of Southeast Asia have benefited enormously from Chinese trade, um, and it's really helped fire up their, their middle-income economies. Um, in some cases, they've gotten infrastructure projects. The tourists are, uh, that you referred to in, uh, in Sebastian's book, those are a big, have a big impact on, on uh, the region, region's economy. Um, but then the, the, there's a, like the long shadow is also there, and that's China is becoming more assertive in the South China Sea. We saw it again this year, even in the middle of COVID. And uh, again this year, we're seeing drought in the lower Mekong countries, and, and uh, China appears to be holding back water between, be, behind its 11 dams on the upper reaches of the Mekong. And then, of course, they're very worried about the, uh, the increasing tensions between China and the United States. They really don't want to be squeezed. Sebastian, we have the rise of China, of course, but we also have longstanding regional powers like Japan, South Korea. In Myanmar, for instance, it is not so much India and the U.S. competing with China. It is Japan which competes with China. How has the rise and increasing reach of China affected the balance with respect to these other powers, military and economic or both? Well, just as China's rise has been a cause of considerable consternation in Washington, D.C., the same is true of Tokyo, Seoul, Taipei, Canberra, uh, probably to a certain extent Moscow as well. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, these powers move each in their own ways to uh, provide a counterweight um, to China's 
increasing economic, political, and military heft. Um, I should also have mentioned India, of course, um, even though it is, is to some extent a peripheral role at present. Um, I think the most significant uh, regional counterweight to China is offered by Japan, um, which is deeply engaged across the region and comes closest to meeting China's particular challenge on its own terms. The Japanese provide high-quality infrastructure. Um, they engage pragmatically um, with the nations of the region. They offer huge amounts of development assistance. Um, and, you know, they, uh, under Shinzo Abe, they've shown a very, a very consistent, pragmatic engagement with the region. One example I might offer is that in the Philippines, um, the Abe government was probably the only government that managed to have good relations with both the Aquino administration and the administration of Rodrigo Duterte. Um, and I think this testifies to the, you know, the depth um, and breadth of the Japanese um, uh, interactions with the Philippines and its engagement there, dating back to before the war, in fact. Um, and so I think, yes, I think, you know, Japan has been described as the region's stealth superpower. Um, it flies under the radar uh, to a large extent, but it is is doing um, quite a lot to uh, offer the nations of the region an alternative to what China is offering. Mare, back to you. Um, and fast forwarding slightly to the future, if if you if you will, because that is on everybody's minds right now. Of course, you would have completed your book before the coronavirus pandemic broke across the world, and that has changed the calculus both within China and in terms of China's reputation abroad. What sense do you have of how Southeast Asia sees a Trump two administration, or conversely, a Joe Biden administration? What are they looking for? Well, in a nutshell, they see a Trump uh, and two administration as being just a little bit more of Trump one. Uh, and so they really do expect that trade tensions uh, would continue, uh, that probably there would be a push to bifurcate the global supply chain, uh, bifurcate the, the technology uh, sphere, as we've seen China, uh, uh, the U.S. being making efforts to block WeChat and, and TikTok, and uh, they, they had done, Ali, uh, and they're now talking about Alibaba also. Um, if Biden is elected, we obviously don't know exactly, but Biden is, has a, a long history as the uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then also as vice president to Obama. President Obama. So they would, they, there's an assumption that he would uh, be um, a more of an engager, that he'd be more multilateral, that he would like to work with groupings uh, like ASEAN, like NATO, uh, like APEC, uh, that he um, might, we don't know, that he might try to find ways to resolve some of the tensions with China by working with some of these countries um, uh, that, that I mentioned, uh, particularly the, the Germany, the Japans, the, the ones that have big trade with China, that pressure them on things like intellectual property rights, uh, pressure them on things like state-owned enterprises, um, and uh, not use tariffs for all the solutions. 
but you know the the Southeast Asians, four Southeast Asian countries are members of the of the newly dubbed uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. But uh, the the um, uh, there's almost no chance that a Biden would go back to that after the very strong rise of bipartisan uh, frustration with trade, a lot of protectionism. Biden even has a has a policy to buy American, uh, sounding awful lot like Trump in some ways. It, it would be certainly a, a nicer, gentler regime, but it would not necessarily bury the hatchet totally with China. Right. Uh, Sebastian, your thoughts on that as well? What are the prospects for Southeast Asia in a Trump II or in a Joe Biden administration? Well, in general, I tend to view U.S.-China competition in structural terms. I know that, you know, the, the nature of the Chinese communist regime does uh, shape its engagement with the outside world to some considerable extent. But I think, you know, what we have is the world's second largest economy soon to eclipse the world's, what has been the world's largest economy since the Second World War. And, and in doing so, challenging a lot of core ideological and, uh, um, tenets that Americans hold about their nation's exceptional role in the world. Um, and I think that that challenge would be there regardless of who is in power. As it turns out, um, it was Donald Trump who provided the catalyst for a far-reaching and bipartisan reassessment of China. Um, and, you know, this is not just a matter of the Trump administration. In Washington, D.C. today, this turn against China, this souring of um, attitudes towards China, stretches across the political spectrum from Senator Elizabeth Warren to Steve Bannon on the right. And so I think what we're likely to see with the Joe Biden administration, you know, if he is elected, um, is, you know, that competition will continue to remain the keynote of the American relationship with China. However, I agree with Murray that within that broad framework of competition and rivalry, we'll probably see more a more sophisticated balance between, you know, um, engaging China where it is mutually beneficial. We'll probably see an end to um, self-defeating economic measures. Um, and we'll see, in general, more coherence um, within the strategy, um, the ability to work with, you know, uh, partners and allies without alienating them through, you know, the levying of tariffs and other, uh, you know, outbursts on social media by the president. So um, I think that, you know, it, it will, um, there'll probably be more continuity than change, but we'll see a certain level-headedness and, and coherence re-injected into um, American-China policy. Okay, uh, Murray, uh, you mentioned the Mekong, and I'm glad you did that, because I've also spent a lot of time there, as you know. Uh, now, under Barack Obama, of course, there was this lower Mekong initiative. The, the U.S. did give some funding and so forth. But it was seen as, you know, not all that amazing, frankly. It didn't sort of shift the game massively. Do you think the U.S. should do more in the Mekong region? Uh, I, would, I would argue for the U.S. doing more. Uh, and maybe not only by itself, but also working with uh, Japan, uh, Australia, um, and other countries to to uh, help help develop the Mekong, uh, the Lower Mekong. But we also, I think, now the problem is becoming we have to help figure out the water problem, because we've if, if China holds back all the water, 
then the the Tonle Sap in in uh, Cambodia, which, as you know, it, it during rainy season it it expands into a big lake, and then it uh, and then when the um, rains stop, it contracts and the river right. flows the opposite direction. And and in that process, there's an awful lot of fish spawning. Uh, and that is really just not been happening last year, and it's probably not going to happen this year. And it's also very hard on the Mekong Delta in southern Vietnam, where where the lack of silt coming down the Mekong uh, the and the lack of water uh, result in... in um, Increased salination, salinization of the land in the in the delta, which is much uh-huh. of it's below sea level. So I think you know ultimately, yes, China has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on aid projects, doing something like three hundred aid uh, aid projects. But the the ultimate cost is uh, to the sixty million farmers that live along the Mekong, whose 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 livelihoods are being increasingly challenged by water being held up, up further north. Right. Uh, Sebastian, a uh, last quick question to you before we wrap up. One, you know, there's this sort of, it's become a bit of a trope that the U.S. has sort of retreated. You know, there are signs of a U.S. retreat from the region. Of course, the U.S. pulled out of TPP. It, you know, it's pulled out of multilateral arrangements like the JCPOA in Iran, the WHO recently. But, but China doesn't have everything to itself. I mean, it, it doesn't have the powerful allies the U.S. has. China has Cambodia, Laos, Pakistan, North Korea, maybe, whereas the U.S. has got a really serious string of powerful allies. So is this slightly overdone in the region, this anxiety over the, the U.S.'s apparent retreat? Do you buy that line? Or is the U.S. actually going it alone but going, doing it pretty robustly? I mean, they have been, as we have mentioned in this conversation, President Trump has been the first one to really muster this consensus and challenge China. What are your thoughts on that? It's somewhere in the middle. I think that what the Trump administration has done definitely is, um, you know, a more robust uh, policy towards China. Um, I think one of the concern that I heard in Southeast Asia when I was researching this book is that, um, you know, the, the Trump administration is eyeing Beijing beatily across the Pacific Ocean, but the, the lands that lie between um, the nations of Southeast Asia and the Pacific um, are being in some, some senses overlooked, that everything is now being channeled through the lens of U.S.-China competition. Um, and, and a lot of America's engagement has been, in Southeast Asia is being framed in those terms as well. So, you know, you, you, there was a lot of concern about, uh, there has been a lot of concern about the um, absenteeism of senior American officials from the region. Um, and the focus, the very narrow focus, on uh, what is perceived to be a very, very narrow focus on um, the South China Sea and military engagement. Um, and I think that, you know, this is an issue that, uh, to a certain extent, all large powers have. The Chinese are also um, eyeing off the Americans um, and, to a large extent, view their relationships in Southeast Asia, again, through the lens of this, this burgeoning great power competition. Um, and I think there's, uh, but I think, you know, with the U.S., you have the issue of geographic distance as well, which, um, you know, makes it very difficult for American administrations to find the right balance between engaging with the region, but not uh, being perceived as sort of uh, um, being too aggressive and too, uh, and asking too much um, 
of their partners and allies in the region. So I think that, yeah, there's certainly, uh, the engagement has been robust, but I think there needs to be more attention to Southeast Asian interests and Southeast Asian concerns. Quick last word from you, Barney, on, on, that, on that same question. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, um, it's interesting. Uh, like Sebastian, I spent a lot of time talking to Southeast Asians the last two years. And uh, um, I guess what I, what I hear is there's a, a yes, what, like, like Sebastian said, that the U.S. is too focused on, on China and that they're viewing us through, that, through the China prism. But they, they really do say that the U.S. is too sporadically involved in the region. So you'll have brief flashes of time when the when the U.S. will show up at all the meetings, uh, be interested in looking for for new uh, opportunities to 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 cooperate, provide uh, maritime domain awareness uh, capabilities to Vietnam and the Philippines. And then it sort of disappears again for a while. And so they're they're not. There, but you know, like like you pointed out, are you know the question is, are the Southeast Asians a little bit too paranoid? Um, oh. But and and the other thing you have to say is that the U.S. has a lot on its plate uh, when it's dealing with the Middle East and Iran and and uh, you know Russia and you know just all kinds of problems. It's hard to keep focusing on Southeast Asia all the time. Right. Okay. Barry Hebert, Sebastian Strangio, once again, congratulations on your respective books. Excellent reading. I really hope that a lot of people read them because it's, 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 it's really a, it's a story of our times, really, and it brings the story of Southeast Asia up to date. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Nima. During the Cold War, Southeast Asia had to perform a very complex balancing act between great powers. Following the Cold War, following the end of the Vietnam War, came a period of relative stability and prosperity. Today, once again, Southeast Asia finds itself in the middle of a rising China and the United States of America. This is one of the most critical stories of our time. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Ghosh. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.